coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. A physician scientist helps us make sense of who needs a COVID-19 vaccine booster. Certainly most of us think that probably everybody in the population at some point is going to require at least a third dose just to round out their initial series. And two researchers tell how they're improving the study of brain disorders with the Brain Genie prediction tool they designed. Brain Genie is actually leveraging some of the similarities in terms of the genetic programs that exist between blood and brain to make predictions about the brain. All that, plus how to spend a mental health day and a visit from the Healing Muse, coming up after the news. University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll learn about COVID-19 vaccine boosters and who may be recommended to get one. Then we'll hear the best way to spend a mental health day. But first, a pair of researchers share their Brain Genie prediction tool and tell how it's already improving the study of brain disorders. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Brain disorders remain such a mystery because scientists cannot study the relevant tissue in human subjects. But researchers at Upstate have a new biomarker grant from the National Institutes of Health, which they hope will help improve the study of brain disorders. With me are Professor Stephen Glatt and Dr. John Hess, an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, both of you. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Amber. Now, Dr. Glatt, you're the director of the Psychiatric Genetic Epidemiology and Neurobiology Lab at Upstate. Can you tell us what that is? Well, sure. And I know that's a mouthful. So we call it the PsychGene Lab. And it's a lab that I started back in 2009, just me and one other individual with a vision, which was that we were going to discover the determinants of mental illness and do something about it. And in the past 12 or 13 years, We've been kind of growing the lab and building out our resources and our project scope so that we study all sorts of psychiatric and, and neurodegenerative disorders to try and find what puts people at risk for those disorders, um, how we can better diagnose them, and what we can do about them. And what are biomarkers? How do you define that? Well, biomarkers can seem like a vague topic, but it actually has a standard definition, which is something that can be objectively measured. That's an indicator of health or disease or the response to a treatment. So a biomarker can really be anything that kind of ebbs and flows with the state of health or disease of an organism. In, in our case, we study humans. So would it be through a, a blood test? Would a biomarker be the cells that you can analyze from blood? Well, in many cases it is, and something like neuroimaging can serve as a biomarker or the chemical composition of a particular tissue. But in our case, we study blood and we scan blood for biomarkers because blood is routinely collected for clinical work anyway. So we might as well collect it for research purposes and look to see if we can identify biomarkers in a readily available blood sample. And the particular type of biomarker that we're most interested in is called messenger RNA, which is kind of the first output of the genome, if you will. And that is a, a chemical that's really written off or controlled by your DNA, so your genetics, but also your environment. We've been hearing a lot about messenger RNA or mRNA with COVID um, being, you know, that the a couple of the vaccines are described as mRNA vaccines, but that has nothing to do with what you're working on, right? Correct. It's a totally different use of mRNA than what we're doing. So in the case of the COVID vaccine, there's introduction of novel mRNA into individuals to create an immune response. But in our case, we're interested in studying just the natural rhythms of the mRNA that we're all producing all the time and to try and identify differences in the expression levels and the types of mRNAs that individuals are making, whether they have or don't have a particular disease. 
Well, let's talk about why researchers can't study the brain in human subjects or have challenges studying the brain in human subjects. Does the tissue have to be alive or could you study brains on autopsy? Well, in a way, you can study the brain in living human subjects, but only at a very uh superficial level. For example, functional MRI is a way to scan the brain and identify areas of it that are receiving more or less blood flow or oxygenation. And that's a proxy for how hard that brain area is working. But when you really want to get into the kind of molecular machinery of what's going on at the cellular level in the brain, you can't just stick a probe into the brain of a living human subject. It's unethical and it's dangerous. So you have to look for proxies. And that's why we've been looking in the blood to see, can we discern anything from the blood that might be reflective of what's going on in the brain? And that's where John's innovation with this new method has really helped open that door for us where before we really had no good insight into the molecular composition of the brain unless an individual was deceased. So Dr. Hess, tell me more about that. Yeah, so that there's a method we've now developed called the Brain Gene Expression and Network Imputation Engine, or Brain Genie. And, and what it is, is it's a, a software tool which is enabling us to make reliable predictions about the molecular composition of the brain solely based off of information we can glean from the blood. And uh, this is opening a brand new frontier for us because, as Steve alluded to, uh, there's there's a lot of challenges that go into understanding the brain in living people. So unless we were to perform neurosurgery and take a sample of brain tissue matter from someone and study it that way, there's there's really no other way we can make inferences or or, or uh, make measurements about the brain. So it's best in, in many cases to use some sort of surrogate to make um, predictions as opposed to performing neurosurgery. Um, so this brain genie tool is one in which we've collected data from other laboratories um, and we compile this data into a database upon which we built brain genie and essentially what we're doing is leveraging a database for which we have information about blood gene expression from the same individuals that also underwent autopsy and postmortem brain matter was also collected so it's a very unique data set, one in which there are very few other data sets like it. Um, because of that, that type of design to the data set where we have both tissues represented from the same individuals, it then allows us to build predictions using blood as a basis to make inferences about the brain. So you have these blood-based gene expressions for 8,000 people in this database, is that right? So the, the database itself that we developed the model off of is separate from the other database of 8,000 that we're looking to apply Brain Genie to. Then one that we developed the model off of comes from the Genotype Tissue Expression Project. The acronym for that is GTEx, and that has, um, data from about 800 or so individuals who donated their bodies to science after they had died. And that's what we're using for building the model. In terms of deploying the model, after training it, that's where the 8,000 um, subjects come into play from whom we have blood-based gene expression on these individuals who are alive. So we're trying to make inferences about their brain as they're alive to correlate um, changes that are occurring in the brain to psychiatric status. I see. So when you say blood-based gene expression, that's taking a blood sample to look at someone's genes. Is that what gene expression means? Correct. So blood-based gene expression is, is simply referring to the molecular composition of genes that are turned on in the blood um, at, at any given moment. And there are a host of different cell types that are circulating in peripheral blood. Um, the ones that we're typically targeting when referring to gene expression in the blood are the white blood cells. So these are, are these are the cells that are typically involved in immune response and immune regulation. And so the, the cells in blood follow a particular genetic program telling them these are the genes that you need to express to be a white blood cell. And there are 
a host of other genetic programs that exist in the human body, instructing cells what genes they need to turn on. Uh, for the brain, it expresses sets of genes that are very unique than the genes that are that are expressed in blood, but there's a little bit of overlap that exists. And so brain gene is actually leveraging some of the similarities in terms of the genetic programs that exist between blood and brain to make predictions about the brain if we only have access to a person's blood sample. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. I'm speaking with two psychiatry and behavioral sciences researchers from Upstate, Dr. Stephen Glatt and Dr. John Hess, about their work to improve the study of brain disorders. So I wanna talk about what you hope to be able to learn from Brain Genie. Dr. Glatt? Well, Brain Genie is just the most exciting development. One of two really great developments that John's been able to push forward in our laboratory group. And we're so blessed to be able to work together as a team and develop these ideas. I feel really fortunate to be able to have worked with John now for a decade and see him grow these ideas uh, from just a spark of a conversation. And this Brain Genie one has come from over 15 years of research that I started back when I was in California at the University of California, San Diego, where we really only were looking in the peripheral blood for biomarkers that might be indicators of disease. And at a certain point we said, well, can we leverage this blood gene expression, not just as a biomarker, not just as an indicator of disease, but to gain some insight into what's actually going on in the brain of people when they're sick. And so that's how Brain Genie helps us. As John mentioned, it takes advantage of this government-funded study, GTEx, in which there are some uh, hundreds of individuals who donated their bodies to science. And once they passed away, they calculated gene expression levels, the amount of mRNA in a whole host of tissues. And fortunately for our purposes, one of those tissues was blood and 12 other of those tissues were in the brain. And so based on those deceased donors, John was able to map the relationship of when you're expressing this amount of gene X in your blood, you might be expressing this amount in brain region one and a different amount in brain region two and a different amount in brain region three and so on. And once we mapped those relationships in GTEx, now we have a mapping function, let's call it, where whenever we get a blood sample, and we measure the expression level of gene X, we can make some better or worse, depending on the gene, uh, prediction about what might be going on in the brain of that individual. So now we no longer need post-mortem brain from individuals, we just need their blood sample. And when we get that blood sample and measure their gene expression, we can make some educated guesses about how much of each gene is being expressed in different brain regions. Now, as a snapshot of what's going on in an individual, that's pretty cool. But if you think about how you could use this over time, as kids develop, we could take multiple blood samples from them and figure out not just how their blood biomarkers are changing, but what might be happening in their brain as they're growing and going through developmental phases. Or if somebody's going through treatment for a brain tumor and we can figure out from their blood sample how much of a gene is being expressed in a certain brain region and how that relates to whether they're getting healthier, not doing well. Uh, or as people age, for example, if we take a blood sample from someone at 65 years of age and they're doing well cognitively, and then at 70 years of age, we take another blood sample and they're starting to show some mild cognitive impairment. Not only can we have a blood biomarker of that, but we might be able to figure out, aha, in one of these 12 brain regions, this level of expression has really diminished over time. And that might be related to the fact that they're losing some cognitive ability. So I think the the applications of this are really limitless and it's a fundamental game changer. And I'm glad that the reviewers of our grant proposal recognized that and the NIH recognized that and gave us funding to continue to develop the work. It sounds really exciting. Now, let me ask you, do you believe the same genes might be responsible for a variety of different mental illnesses or do you think each illness has a different genetic root? Well, that's a, that's a big question, Amber, and one that I have an opinion on, but no proof as of yet, although there's some evidence to support it. I happen to believe that there's a core set of genes that predispose people toward brain disorders, and those are largely shared, uh, whether you have a developmental disorder like autism or a disorder of early adulthood like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, or a disorder perhaps even of of aging and neurodegeneration like Alzheimer's disease. 
but certainly among those disorders that onset in childhood or early adulthood, I think there's a core set of genes that put you at risk for a brain disorder of some sort. And then there's probably other sets of genes that push you more toward an early developmental onset disorder or a later developmental onset disorder. And probably other sets of what we would call modifier genes that push it more toward an anxiety disorder or a psychotic disorder or a mood disorder. So, yeah, I do think there are core sets of genes for brain disorders, but I think there's probably lots of genes that lead to some specificity of a particular brain disorder, too. Well, Dr. Hess, let me ask you, why is one of the goals to make brain genie available to other researchers? That's a great question, Amber. So, so we subscribe in lab to the spirit of open science. And what that is, is to make research and analytical tools that come from research as accessible and as transparent as possible. And as Steve has mentioned, there are countless applications for brain genie and other derivatives of this tool that could happen in the future. And it would be to the benefit of science as a whole, if more people can get access to it and carry out the same type of vision that we have for this tool in terms of downstream applications to disease, um, finding preventions for disease, finding novel treatment targets for disease, and just improving well-being for people as a whole. Well, I the bottom to... line is we can't do it all ourselves, Amber. So we're counting on other people to pay attention, take note, and catch that excitement that we feel about how big of a game changer this is and start to use it in their own labs to study diseases of interest to them. I thank you both for taking the time to share your research. My guests have been Dr. John Hess, an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, and Dr. Stephen Glatt, a professor who directs the Psych Gene Lab at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, who needs a COVID-19 vaccine booster? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. People with compromised immune systems or certain medical conditions have already been obtaining third shots of the COVID-19 vaccine. And now there are questions about who else needs to get boosters. I'm turning to an expert for some answers to commonly asked questions. Dr. Katie Anderson is an assistant professor of medicine and microbiology and immunology, and she's part of the Institute for Global Health and Translational Sciences at Upstate. Thank you for making time for this interview, Dr. Anderson. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. Can you start, please, by walking us through the procedure for deciding who will need a booster? Um, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Food and Drug Administration are involved, but what is each of their roles? Yeah, let's start by talking through how uh, investigational drug or vaccine is typically approved, and that will help people understand what the steps will be going forward for these boosters. Because I can appreciate that it's been a little bit confusing and has seemed a little bit jumbled at times, but um, the steps that are occurring now are as they should be occurring, and we'll talk that through. So the FDA and the CDC are both involved in terms of rolling out either, in this case, um, vaccines or new uses of vaccines or a third dose, for example. And they both have their own independent committees. So the FDA has what's called the VRBAC or the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, which is kind of a, a mouthful. And CDC has the ACIP, which is the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. The reason I mention these committees is because they're really important and I think really a strength of how products are approved in the United States because these are independent advisory boards they're made up of experts, public health, um, public health experts, clinicians, and they have no vested interest in the outcome of these meetings. They're also not affiliated with the government. And so, for example, on September 17th, the VRBAC or the FDA's advisory committee met to discuss this first step, which is that Pfizer had approached the FDA and said, we would like to add on a third dose. The third dose was not part of their initial EUA or emergency use authorization, so it needs to go through all of these steps. The VRBAC met on September 17th, and they recommended that the FDA consider approving vaccines for individuals age 65 and older who are six months out from their, their full series, um, those who are at risk for severe disease, 
as well as potentially those who are at high risk for exposure, such as healthcare workers. Now, the next step, and then this is again how it always proceeds with a vaccine, a drug, or a new application of these, is that the ACIP or the CDC's advisory board will meet and they will discuss how we would implement these recommendations. So FDA's role is to look at um, safety and benefit, safety and efficacy, relatively um, more concrete measures. The CDC and ACIP will grapple with how do we roll this out? Who do we prioritize first? Um, and they will be meeting the ACIP on September 22nd and 23rd. Their recommendations, again, as an independent advisory board, will go to the CDC, who will make their formal recommendations. And finally, the FDA will make their final, if they agree, amendment to the initial EUA. So there are several steps that have to happen before there's actually a change in the EUA or the FDA um, approval for a specified drug or vaccine, which is why it seems a little bit confusing that perhaps we'd all been expecting that we could go to our pharmacy on September 20th and just get that third shot. But that was a little bit of putting the cart before the horse in terms of all of these meetings still had to happen and still are yet to happen. So during this process, do the vaccine makers themselves present research or does the government do its own research to see whether this is necessary or if it's safe? So when the when the vaccine or drug manufacturer, again, in this case, Pfizer, um, applies to the FDA for a revision or an amendment to their EUA, they present their own data based upon their clinical trials. Um, and they've been doing ongoing extended observation of people from the first clinical trials as well as booster studies. But the government does their own research as well. So CDC does their own research and presents at these meetings, for example, at the Verbac meeting. And then there's a wealth of other people in academic institutions and other groups who have been doing research as well. And this all enters into what FDA and CDC will review as the evidence that these are safe, effective, and indicated. Now, how common is it for a vaccine to require a booster? Well, and I think here it's important to separate out two different concepts, and we don't fully yet know what we're dealing with here. There's the concept of a third dose being necessary to complete your initial series of a vaccine, and there's the concept of a booster dose um, where you need to possibly occasionally be re-exposed just to up your immunity to something new that's circulating. Both of those are relatively common in public health, Certainly for a lot of the infectious diseases that we get vaccinated against, they are an extended prime series. So hepatitis A, for example, is given over the course of a year. Polio is given over the course of four years. And most people accept that COVID-19 is going to require at least a three-dose prime series. So in some ways we could say, we're not sure yet if we're just giving a booster and people are gonna need another booster next year or the year after for COVID. But certainly most of us think that probably everybody in the population at some point is going to require at least a third dose just to round out their initial series. Does that mean that the existing vaccine that we all got earlier in the year is not effective against evolving strains or would this just happen anyway? Well, it's important to define what we're thinking of as um, effective. Effective against what? And certainly there's been kind of a mix of statistics and jumbled concepts in terms of thinking about how these vaccines protect against COVID. Do they protect against severe disease or death? Do they protect against just a mild disease or any infection? And right now trying to tease apart these concepts, it's a little bit complex because we have three competing factors going on. One is we have the emergence of the Delta variant, which has been really a game changer in terms of transmissibility. We have possibly some waning immunity um, in, in terms of, you know, the, especially older individuals in our population got their first dose back in January or February. So several months have now passed. And we also have this concept of older people and their um, evolving immune system and how they may respond less well. So the data so far seems to strongly suggest that the vaccines remain highly effective for most people in terms of preventing severe disease and death. So for most people, they continue to do exactly what we really need them to do which is keep us out of the hospital, keep us off the ventilator. The, there is increasing signal that they continue to work quite well in terms of preventing mild illness and infection, but there might be a slight decrease in that. We're not sure if that's because of the Delta variant or waning immunity. But again, where the rubber really hits the road, severe disease and death, for most people, they protect very well. There's a few exceptions to that, which is what prompted the Verbax recommendations to the FDA on September 17th, 
which is we're starting to see some slightly decreasing protection against severe disease and death in older individuals, those with compromised immune systems, um, and a few other people who have underlying severe comorbidities. Would that be because the immune system uh, in a person who is aging is uh, less strong than someone who's young? I mean, is that a natural thing that a, a person, as they get older, they don't have as strong of an immune system? That's right. And that's been observed for other infections and for other vaccines as well. So we know that a person's immune response to a vaccine, for example, may be less long lasting if you're older, or it might be less strong, less of a boost with the vaccine. And that's one of the reasons why, for example, older individuals may need to get a higher dose of the influenza vaccine just to boost that response. Now, I've also heard talk that uh, people who may need boosters include those who are at quote unquote higher risk for a severe case. But I'm not really clear what that means. I mean, who would be higher risk beyond the elderly? I know, I know we've talked about, you know, older people, but beyond that, who else would be at risk? Yeah, and I think there's um, two separate groups that we would think of with that. So who is at high risk for COVID right now? Beyond the elderly, um, who just by the nature of their aging immune systems may be more susceptible. There's certain groups that it still seems to bear out are at higher risk for severe COVID, and that would be people with underlying kidney disease, lung disease, heart disease, um, obesity, sickle cell disease, or diabetes, um, or other you know, autoimmune diseases where they're taking immunosuppressing medications, for example. So it's actually a rather large patient population who may be at more risk for um, severe, severe COVID disease. And then the other population that we should think about, um, again, as mentioned in, in the Burback meeting, is there's populations of individuals who are at higher risk of exposure. So maybe they're younger, healthier people, but if you're a healthcare worker and you're exposed to COVID patients 20 times per day, you're just probabilistically, your chance of being infected goes up. What about someone who lives with someone who's got a compromised immune system and is at higher risk? Would that person or that family be uh, at higher risk too? Individuals who reside with people who are at higher risk for severe COVID certainly have indications for being cautious in their day-to-day. -day. They should certainly be vaccinated if they're not. I would also put young children who are not yet eligible to get vaccines into that group who's currently at elevated risk. So people living with them should certainly be vaccinated. They should be masked when they're out and about. But I think what we'll be seeing play out in some of these discussions with FDA, CDC, and their advisory boards is for the general population, people who are healthy, younger, what is the risk-benefit analysis for them to get a booster right now? And those discussions are still ongoing. I've heard that the fully vaccinated can still be infected and spread the coronavirus. Would boosters reduce the ability of the virus to spread? The goal of the boosters is to achieve three things, ideally. One is to get a stronger immune response. So in other words, if your antibodies were starting to go down over time, maybe passing out of protective levels to make them higher and stronger to make the immune response broader. And there is some evidence that a third dose does that, which means that it protects um, more widely across a range of variants and that it's more durable and that it lasts longer. And so it stands to reason that that should have a beneficial effect, not only on preventing severe disease and death from this variant or other variants to come, but as well as decreasing your probability of becoming infected or transmitting. But one thing that I'll mention in the US that still remains as a challenge is that Right now, with such a high proportion of our population remaining unvaccinated, the decrease in transmission that we may see from getting our vaccinated population three boosters is um, still going to be somewhat limited because of the high uh, proportion of our population that's still unvaccinated and vulnerable. Upstate's HealthLink on air will take a short break, but we'll be back with more information about COVID boosters with Dr. Katie Anderson. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Katie Anderson, who's answering questions about what we can expect from the COVID-19 booster shots. Now, I'm remembering back when the vaccine was first available and it was very competitive to try to get a vaccination for a lot of people. At this point, uh, looking at boosters for certain populations, will those people be going to pharmacies or county-run or state-run clinics or doctor's offices? Do we know? 
My hope for the long-term um, public health approach to this virus is that it will become more your doctor's office based because I think that flows more naturally. They can provide counseling, they provide you your other seasonal vaccines, for example, influenza. But currently it's still the same model where most people will probably be getting their booster doses at a pharmacy. Now, how long should people wait after their last COVID vaccine before they get a booster? Has that been determined? The the Verbax recommendation to the FDA was waiting six months because the data currently is that after six months, you may start to see that decrease in protection for older people or people at risk. Um, and we'll see what the what the next meetings conclude. Now, if we got a Pfizer originally, do we need a Pfizer booster? And if we got Moderna first, do we need a B Moderna booster? The U.S. approach to this might be different than the approach taken in different countries around the world. So other countries are doing a mix and a match approach, and they're actually finding some good results with that. Currently, it seems as though the United States is going to recommend that whatever you got, you stick with. But there needs to be more specific um, guidance and recommendations coming out, of course, for Moderna and for Johnson & Johnson, and hopefully that will be coming out in the weeks ahead. Is there anything to suggest that it would be dangerous if we mixed them up or if we forgot what we got the first time and went back and got the other one? Would that cause a problem necessarily? I don't think it would likely cause a problem. These are all very safe vaccines. The challenge would become that already the data are complex, right? We have three different vaccines with different doses and regimens administered at different times with different variants, and it gets difficult to tease out the signal and the noise at times and make um, reasoned recommendations or to know which recommendations apply to you if you've mixed and matched. So as much as people can, they should follow whatever precise guidance is given. And I don't want to forget the Johnson & Johnson shot. You know, a lot of people got that one because it was advertised as a one-shot thing. Um, is that being looked at as possibly needing a second shot? Most people, I... I think it's fair to say, except that there will need to be at least an additional dose of Johnson & Johnson. A challenge with Johnson & Johnson, and I have family members who have gotten Johnson & Johnson, and we're eager for guidance for them as well, is that it was relatively fewer Americans who got it, and so the data is a little slower to come. It Just to reassure people, it does still seem as though the protection against severe disease and death is still strong with Johnson & Johnson, even against the Delta variant, but in terms of protection against infection, transmission, I think that likely we're going to see a need for another dose, and that should be coming, at least the discussions in the weeks and months ahead. Now, let me ask you, if someone was fully vaccinated and then they became infected, like with a breakthrough case of COVID-19, should they still be in line for a booster shot if they're over 65? Yes. Yeah, so I think the guidance for the booster should be the same as it was for the initial two-dose series, which was that even if you had COVID, you should still be getting the vaccines. We're still learning about the relative benefit of COVID alone, COVID plus vaccine or vaccine alone, but clearly the vaccines seem to offer um, a broader immune response and maybe one that's stronger. So the recommendation for these boosters would be the same as it was before, which is as soon as you're out of your isolation period and you no longer have symptoms, you should go in and get your booster. Now we're entering flu season. Um, is it safe to get a flu shot at the same time as you get a COVID booster or a COVID vaccine? There's no reason not to get your influenza and COVID shot at the same time, and you certainly can. There's no contraindication or recommendation against that. If you're able to weigh out some of the other considerations, you may consider spacing them just because both of them can have some side effects, and you may not want to set yourself up for double side effects on the same day. But in terms of protection from the vaccine, there's no reason you can't get them on the same day. Would that be the same for a pneumonia shot or a shingles vaccine? Could you also get those if you wanted to at the same time? Currently, and there may be more to come from CDC or ACIP, but currently there's no recommendation against getting any of your routine vaccinations concurrent with your COVID 19 shot. And I think the recommendation, at least as it stands currently, is that you should be protecting yourself in as many ways as you can right now. Now, what should we expect in terms of side effects from the booster? If when we got our vaccine, if we didn't really have much of an effect, is that probably what it'll be like again or not necessarily? The data suggests currently that that for Pfizer, and right now we're only talking about third doses for Pfizer, that the side effect profile for the third dose is similar to it was after dose two, which is to say that 
Not everyone will have side effects. Some people will have body aches, fatigue, a sore arm that may last some hours to a day or two after their shot. How can we determine whether the vaccine is working? Is there a reliable test that people can take? That's a great question. And it's one that we hear uh, from a lot of people who may be even trying to do that, getting antibody tests and concerned when they don't see a specific response when they know they got vaccinated. And there's a couple things to bear in mind with that. So first, we don't routinely recommend people getting tests to see if their vaccine worked in them or not. And that's because some of the tests don't even look for the right targets. So the vaccine, for example, Pfizer, J&J, &J, and Moderna all give you antibodies just to this one small part of the virus. But some of the antibody tests look for a different part of the virus that you never would have been exposed to. So you should be negative to it if you've never had COVID. The other thing that's important to know is that we don't know yet what a protective response would be. So say you got an antibody test and the result was 200. What does that mean? We don't really know. Does that mean you're protected? Does it mean you're at risk? We don't fully understand what, a, what we call a correlative protection would be for SARS-CoV-2. So currently we don't recommend routine antibody testing or you know, vaccine response testing. So the Red Cross has been testing donated blood for um, COVID-19 antibodies. Um, and I wonder how accurate that is, given what you just said. Is that is that a good indicator that the person who donated that blood has protection or, or not? I would say at the individual level, I would not rely on those results to say if you're protected or not in either direction. Um, at a population level, I can think of lots of ways why that kind um, lots of ways that that, could, that kind of testing could be useful. So looking at changes in antibodies over time to see is vaccination going up? You could even compare and see what percent of people have been exposed to COVID by looking at different markers on the virus. So at a population level, that could be very informative. But if you or a family member, for example, are trying to track your immune response, I wouldn't count on any of the currently available antibody tests. What can you tell us about projections for when a vaccine for kids under 12 might be available? That's the million dollar question right now. Um, and maybe even more critical than than boosters, right? So kids are going back to school. Kids under 12 are not even eligible to be vaccinated yet. And they're at pretty high risk when there's so much Delta circulating. Um, Pfizer recently published um, their preliminary findings that suggest that the vaccine is safe, tolerable, and what they describe as immunogenic, which means that it causes a good immune response in kids age five to 11. And they plan to submit to the FDA soon. So that's encouraging. And it means that perhaps sometime late September or early October, um, timelines are a little bit hard to predict, but maybe we'll start to see some of those meetings to discuss making those available. For younger kids down to six months, um, those discussions and the pre presentation of the data might not happen until late 2021. Interesting. Well, uh, you mentioned Delta, and that's the variant we're all familiar with right now. But I'd like to ask you, we've heard about Mu, MU, an, another kind of variant, and I'm sure there's lots of others out there, but I'm wondering how these variants are monitored and how do you tell when one is a serious threat? Because there's a lot of them, right? And not all of them really are doing much damage. That's right. And so first, um, to lay an understanding that these types of viruses, so this is called an RNA virus, by their very nature, they generate variants. When they reproduce themselves, they're very sloppy by design. Their goal is to evolve quickly. And so there have been many, many variants for SARS-CoV-2 already, and there will be many, many more to come. So I just want to set people's cortisol levels and expectations for not being too nervous when you see new variants coming out. Um, we worry about variants when they spread more easily when they cause more severe disease or when they evolve to escape immunity, those three things. Delta we worry about because it's shown to be at least two of them more transmissible and we think cause more severe disease. And its ability to evade immunity is not so certain, but it seems to maybe cause more breakthrough cases. So currently Delta is 99% of the variants that we have circulating in the United States. And we know that because when people are infected, you can take the specimen to the lab and you can look at the genetic sequence of the virus. And then you can compare it and see how related it is to other viruses to see how they all cluster together in terms of similarity. And Delta has clearly outcompeted nearly everything right now. 
Mu, which people are keeping their eyes on, is currently more of an issue in South America, where there's a couple different um, distinctions from the United States. Vaccines have not been as common. Delta has not been as common. Folks are worried about mu because when they look at it, it seems to have a few mutations um, in terms of the spike protein that make people concerned that it might escape immunity, but that's not been demonstrated. So it's impossible. I'm now at a point where I can safely say we can't predict with great certainty what's going to happen with COVID next month or even next year. But Delta has been so contagious. I, I think it remains to be seen if mu is going to be able to displace it and if it's something we need to be worried about. But there's great efforts going on right now and growing to sequence these viruses or look at the genetic code. And for example, I believe Upstate's doing 10% of the sequences for New York State right now. And they're trying to really keep their eye on these variants. Interesting. Well, before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you to help us understand COVID testing. Because for people in our community, vaccinated or not, um, you know, if someone develops a runny nose or a headache, a fever, they may be advised to get tested for COVID. And there seems to be a variety of options for that. And so I just want to ask you, which which test is the best? Well, and it depends on how we define what, what the best is. In terms of being the most sensitive and specific, the PCR tests tend to be, I'd say, the most reliable and what we should really be using to guide a lot of our um, individual decisions in terms of can it, does a kid need to stay out of school, for example. Um, well, let me ask you, what is PCR? Is that a blood test? Yeah, good question. So PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction, and it looks for the genetic material of the virus. There's a couple different ways we can do it. You can look for um, virus. Actually, in the blood is not the best place for COVID. We look for it in the nose, and many of us have experienced those, those deep nasal swabs, which tend to be PCR tests. And increasingly, we're seeing saliva tests. Obviously, here at Upstate, that's been a huge part of our response and plan for COVID has been the saliva PCR. Both very good. Um, not all saliva PCR tests are created the same, but here in this area, we can be very assured that we're dealing with an excellent saliva PCR test. This is in contrast to the rapid tests. You know, we've heard a lot more, and I think this is a good thing about, but about the availability of rapid tests that you can buy at the pharmacy, for example, and administer yourself. Or someone can go to the fairgrounds, for example, and get a test where they give them the answer right then. If you have an instant response, which has a lot of advantages, that's a rapid test. And those are different because they're not looking for the genetic material or the RNA of the virus, they're looking for the protein. They're looking for a different target. And so the way that these tests can work is faster and it can be more widely available. Let me ask you, though, how frequently do you see false positives in the rapid tests? You can see both false positives and false negatives. And from a public health perspective, you know, we really worry about the false negatives where somebody has COVID, but the test tells them that they don't. And the false negative rate really varies depending on the test and the quality of the test. But for someone who's... Um, symptomatic, so someone has symptoms and they do a rapid test, on average, right now we think that about 78% of the time they may get an appropriate positive result, and that means 22% may be a false negative. That goes down even more when you have people who have no symptoms at all. So say you just decided you would do a rapid test every week just to see if you had COVID and you had no symptoms, then it's more maybe 50-60% of the time you would actually get a positive if you were positive. So these have some real gaps in terms of their ability to pick up cases. And PCR is really a superior test um, in terms of its sensitivity. So if you got a positive on one of those rapid tests, you might want to follow it up with a PCR to confirm if you, if you feel like you're not sick? Yeah, I think for most of these, I think the confirmatory test would end up being PCR anyway, but there are some advantages, right? So if you know that you have COVID earlier through a rapid test, that's good to know and important to know. Um, but you can have both false positives and false negatives with the rapids. And so following it up with a PCR most of the time would be indicated. Well, here we are going into our uh, second winter in during this pandemic. How much longer are we going to have to wonder if we wake up with a headache and fever, whether it's COVID or not? Is this going to be our way of life for the years to come? Or will this go away at some point? 
That's a really tough question. And I, I fear that the answer that I have to give right now is one that a lot of people won't like to hear. Um, at an individual level, I really hope um, and I have cautious optimism that a third dose will provide most of us, if not all of us who are vaccinated with the protection we need to avoid going to the ICU and dying from COVID. In terms of disruptions to our lives, I think we have months, if not years left to grapple with this virus and the disruptions that it will cause. And the reason I say that is um, because of the global picture with COVID, where right now we have just 3% of Africa that's vaccinated, which is problematic, not just for humanitarian reasons, but for variant evolution um, considerations as well. And um, there's not an easy solution or a rapid timeline to get the whole world vaccinated, much less the rest of the United States, where we still are having issues getting um, vaccination and transmission under control in our country. So unless and until we can get widespread and full protection from vaccines, both in the United States and then more globally, this is going to continue to be an issue. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time and then being so thorough with your answers to all of these questions. My guest has been Dr. Katie Anderson. She's an assistant professor of medicine and microbiology and immunology at Upstate, and she's part of the Institute for Global Health and Translational Sciences. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Here's some expert advice from Dr. Koshal Nanavati from Upstate Medical University. What's the best way to spend a mental health day? You know, the best answer in medicine is it depends. The reason I give that answer is because for some people, it might be getting to the bank, right? Uh, and getting their finances done. Others might need to go grocery shopping or, uh, you know, do the lawn. Some people might need to just take a nap, right? Sleep. Uh, others may feel like, you know what? I would like to get out into nature and go on a hike. Now, sometimes people do physically challenging things during down times, and it's rejuvenating in the moment, but the body does require recovery, right? So like the weekend warrior phenomena that can actually potentially even lead to injury. And so the key is consistency and it's trying to pace ourselves. One study was interesting that showed that people that did 10 minutes of exercise a day versus people that did 30 minutes three times a week, the people that did 10 minutes a day were more likely to make it a habit, right? And so, again, this idea of recovery and then, you know, going, 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 going until you hit the wall and then taking a break versus incorporating into a regular routine, which you can sustain over time, leads to improved sustainable outcomes so that in all spokes, you're able to perform at a better, more consistent level as well. You've been listening to Dr. Koshal Nanavati from Upstate Medical University. And now... Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Two of our poets sent us very different views of awake. Both views allow us to see how this ritual can be celebratory as well as devastating. First up comes from our Tennessee poet and professor Daniel Gleason from Bryan College. Here is his toast at awake. To your eyes, to their light and to their color, to your ability to see every shade of color, to pastels, neons, warms, cools, watercolors, to dyed eggs and to the high museum of art, to your kitchen, to the kitchen work you did in countless kitchens in others' homes, to keeping dirty dishes on one side of the sink, to boiling eggs for precisely 13 minutes, to mashed potatoes and gravy, to butter, to your mother's squash casserole recipe, to color schemes and culinary arts, to the day you return to the kitchen after all the years, after all the treatments, trazodone, doxepin, electroshock, witch hazel, to knowing that you might not have returned but did, to seeing light and color return to your eyes, to resurrection, to you I raise this toast, see us. Our second reading comes from Jennifer Campbell, an English professor from Buffalo, New York. Here is her poem, Deciding to Attend the Wake, for A.B. 
It's not about whether I'd like to be there, but do I have the right to step into the tsunami of grief? Signposts holding me back, young, suicide, jumped. The prodigal son rent the earth in two, one sunny morning, traffic halted by the divide. Now a whole town in line to tug you above the waves, something I am not strong enough to do, having barely survived the initial blast. I have one living son. Even now, his light pries open my eyes every day. His breathing calms mine every night. How can I tell you the cleaving is irreparable, aftershocks expected? Little comfort in knowing the feet will still move forward, even when there's no certainty of ground. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how to create a safe sleep environment for your baby. To hear more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.